0: Principal Matters Podcast, episode 175. Hi, friends. This is Will Parker, host of Principal Matters, the School Leaders Podcast, where each week I bring you inspiring, innovative, and imaginative ideas for your own school leadership. This week, we're talking about middle school matters with my guest, Phyllis Fagel. Phyllis Fagel is a licensed clinical professional counselor, certified professional school counselor, and a journalist. She has worked in both public and private schools with students in grades K-12, focusing on middle school for several years. She currently works full-time as a school counselor for Sheridan School in Washington, D.C. As a journalist, Phyllis writes for a number of national publications and is a frequent contributor for The Washington Post on counseling, parenting, and education. Recently, she released her new book, Middle School Matters, the 10 key skills kids need to thrive in middle school and beyond, and how parents can help. It is my privilege to welcome her to Principal Matters today. And Phyllis, we're so excited to have you on the show. Fill in the gaps on that intro. And what is something Principal Matters listeners may be surprised to know about you?
1: Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's always nice to have a conversation with you. Probably what people might be most surprised to know is that I actually had a positive middle school experience and I was really inspired to write the book because of my experience as an educator and seeing how dramatically different childhood is today than it was when we were growing up. I also have three kids of my own.
0: (laughs) Well, shout out to your kids. What ages are they?
1: So, I have uh, two that I've already put through middle school. one's a senior in high school and one's a junior, and then my youngest just uh, started middle school and he's
0: in sixth grade Oh, that's fantastic. So not only are you an experienced educator, but you have survived the middle school experience with your own children and it is surprising Phyllis to to meet someone whose middle school years weren't horrible because so many people I talk to talk about how those are the hardest years that they've had
1: I think that's right, and a lot of people have difficulty anticipating their own child going to middle school because they bring all of that negativity to the table. I like to reassure parents that their memories actually are inflated because they too were going through puberty and experiencing all of their emotions on a 10 at the time. And so actually, those experiences weren't probably markedly worse than any negative experiences they had at other times as they were growing up.
0: Well, I want to just tell a quick story because a couple of years ago, I was at the AMLE, National Conference for Middle-Level Educators. And you and I happened to be sitting by each other after a breakout session. And we had an amazing conversation, shared a lot of the work that you're doing uh, with your schools. I was able to share work that I do with principals. And we've been able to continue this relationship virtually. And so it was so exciting to me, Phyllis, when I saw that you were releasing your new book, Middle School Matters. And I was so happy to get a copy of this book in my hands. And I just want to dive right into the conversation today by first just asking you to overview the 10 key skills that you think middle school students need to know and, and why you chose those skills. And I know we could spend hours going into each of these areas. But first of all, just give us an overview of what those skills are, and then let's start uh, Take some time to just dive into a couple of them.
1: So very broadly, the 10 skills are make good friend choices, negotiate conflict, manage a student-teacher mismatch, create homework and organization systems, consider others' perspectives, self-advocate, self-regulate emotions, cultivate passions and recognize limitations, and make responsible, healthy, ethical choices, and then create and innovate. And it's not that any of these skills are only ones that were are developing in the middle school years, but I see middle school as the last best chance to really solidify values and help kids develop a positive identity and figure out how they learn and what they need to do to meet their needs and discover their, their
0: interests. Mm, well, I like all 10 of those. And I do have to put a plug in too, for those of you that are interested in Phyllis's book, that not only does she take a great, do a great job unpacking Each of those, but she's also just an amazing writer. And Phyllis, I love how you've interweaved stories throughout so much of your book, where you give stories from the perspective of kids, stories from the perspective of school employees, stories from your own perspective, stories from perspectives of other administrators and teachers. And so I know this was a labor of love for you, but um, let's take a few minutes to unpack one or two of those areas. Where would you like to begin? In terms of something that a principal, because so many of my listeners are aspiring principals or veteran principals or new principals, what is an area that you think would be important for a principal to focus on when it comes to helping middle school kids manage learning important skills?
1: I would probably start with make responsible, healthy, and ethical choices. So much of a principal's job has to do with the culture and the climate and helping kids be their best selves. And there's a lot of counterintuitive instincts that people tend to have when it comes to helping kids you know, eliciting kids' best behavior. And, and one story that I really love, I spoke to a principal and this interview is one of my favorite interviews of all time. His name is Michael Gordon. He's now retired, but he was a middle school principal for 40 years. And I mean, just let that sink in for a second, 40 years as a middle school principal. So he really had seen it all and done it all. And a story he told me was about this group of about 10 or 12 sixth graders who were constantly getting referred to the main office for getting in trouble. And these were kids who really saw themselves as the class clown. I recently had a principal tell me that if you give a middle schooler the choice between being kind and unfunny or funny and unkind or mischievous, they're always going to choose funny. And these boys sort of fell into that archetype. And one day this principal was watching the show uh, The Dog Whisperer, and in the show The Dog Whisperer, the host gives the dogs jobs to help them learn how to behave better. You know, they they may put water bottles on their backs and turn them into pack meals, and suddenly the dogs step into line. So one day the principal was watching the show and thought, you know what, I'm going to do this with my sixth graders. And so he decided to teach them, this this group of kids, how to use the mechanical curtains and the lighting equipment and the expensive machinery in the auditorium. These were really highly technical skills, and and the equipment costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. And what ended up happening is that these kids started to self-identify as, this, uh, as a tech squad. He even bought them black uniforms with glow-in-the-dark letters that said their names and said tech squad. And toward the end of the school year, the person who was in charge of technology actually called him sick and was unable to be there for graduation. And one of these little boys who was about 11 or 12 said, don't worry, Mr. Gordon, I've got this. I can do it. And sure enough, he was able to manage all of it with his classmates himself. The tech squad just took over and it went off without a hitch. And then later his mother came in to say that uh, his her child, who had previously hated school and refused to go to school, suddenly was living and breathing school. And these kids, for the rest of their middle school experience, were never referred to the main office again. So it just highlights how important it is to give kids meaningful responsibility and a sense of purpose and how that can help bring out the best in them.
0: Wow. I love that story, Phyllis. And it reminds me of so many other times I've seen that same interaction with with kids when they find that thing that they love. I can remember back, this was several years ago when I was an assistant principal, our school introduced a a pre-engineering style class that was kind of the beginning of what STEM looks like now. And those kids were given the opportunity to build and design their own robotics. They would set up designs in competition to each other to see who could make a, a ball move across the room faster than the other team. And I would get to school early as an administrator and those kids would already be lined up ready to get in the building because they had a purpose. They, they wanted to be there so badly that they would get there before school, they would stay late after school because they found something that they loved. So I, I love that story. What are some other takeaways for principals when they're thinking about school-wide, how, how to introduce kids to responsible ethical choices, things where they, can, where they feel like they have meaningful participation in school?
1: I think it's really important to involve kids in rule generation. You know, there's been a lot of debate recently about, cell phones and whether or not kids should have cell phones in school. And at home, parents are also having the same battle. A story that I love from the home front was a parent who decided to involve their child in limiting their cell phone use while they were doing homework. And they came up with a system where the child would put the cell phone in a sealed envelope and they couldn't use it for a set amount of time, but they could have it on their person. And that worked for them. And I think that's a good example of how when you engage and involve a kid, they're going to be more willing to to follow whatever those policies are. You know, you're less likely to tear down a system you helped build. And then whether it's bathroom breaks or homework expectations, just involving them as much as you can. With cell phones in particular, I keep thinking about cell phones, and I know we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but kids it's counterintuitive, but even though kids tend to spend far too much time on their phone, they actually welcome a chance to have a break. They just don't want the rules to be imposed inconsistently or unfairly, but just like adults, they want to be able to have a conversation with a peer that involves eye contact and undivided attention. they just don't want to miss out on anything so if they know that everybody is, everybody has to comply and everybody's phone has been put away, they will be not only okay with the rule, they they actually will appreciate it. And going back to what a principal can do on that front, that same principal who who watched the dog whisperer and who gave those sixth graders a sense of purpose told me a story about imposing cell phone rules in his school. And this was a long time ago. And this was actually when cell phones were relatively new. And his story shocks principals whenever whenever I share it. And the rule was, if you took your cell phone out in class, the first time the teacher would confiscate it and give it back to them at the end of class. The second time the teacher would send it to the main office, and they could pick it up at the end of the day. The third time, the principal would get the phone, and no one could get it back, even the parents. And when I tell this story, people said, what do you mean they couldn't get it back? The principal kept the phone. It's sort of hard to imagine. But yeah, he kept the phone, and I asked him how that turned out for him, and he said it only happened two times. And then no one ever broke the cell phone rule again. It's amazing.
0: Wow. That's powerful. Yeah. And I talked to a lot of principals that are on both sides of those situations. You know, years ago, there was a lot of limitations on phones and then the pendulum swung to a lot of openness for phones. And now the pendulum is swinging back as we see research that shows that limiting the amount of time on technology can actually be healthier for students. And so Principal Matters listeners, I know you're in different places Uh, whether it's different places in the country or different places and sizes of schools. And some of you are in rural or suburban or urban communities. But I think the main goal is figuring out something that works consistently for your community and then enforcing it consistently. Because one of the things, Phyllis, that you said that I thought was really insightful is helping students avoid FOMO because a lot of kids have that fear of missing out. And so you're right, the more consistently you can enforce those expectations, the less anxious they are because those decisions have already been made. But I also love it that you encourage principals to consider making students part of the solutions, because in a lot of the examples that you give, you're talking about ways for kids to help design the strategies that are necessary for moving forward. And I know as a school counselor, you see that with in your conversations with students and with parents and with admins too. Anything else you want to add on that?
1: You know, I think that's, The more we treat kids, particularly middle schoolers, with respect and maybe talk a little bit above their age level, above their maturity level, above what we think of as their intellectual level, the more respected they feel and the more likely they are to comply and to feel like they have a sense of agency. And it's that sense of agency and feeling empowered that leads them to, that helps them comply as opposed to rebel against whatever rules are being established.
0: Um, You know, I'm a father also of a middle schooler, and I've got three older daughters who are high school or college age, and then I have my youngest is a middle schooler. And the strategies work, Phyllis. Last week, he and I were talking about some expectations for school, and instead of me dictating this is what's going to happen, we had the conversation of what are some things that you can be doing that might help. And so, just uh, so the, the things that you're talking about in terms of helping them come up with decisions on their own is so much more empowering because when it's their idea, then they're going to be a whole lot more eager to, to implement it too. I know you also talk a lot about the importance of self-regulating emotions. And one of the conversations that I've had with, or not just one, but often I'm having conversations with principals who are dealing with kids either from trauma backgrounds or just students in general that have a really difficult time knowing how to regulate their emotions. And so I would love for you to talk about that for a few minutes. What are some things that principals can keep in mind when they're working with students and trying to help students learn to self-regulate their emotions?
1: The first is that kids in this age group don't have The feelings language that they need to really fully understand their emotions. They also don't know that emotions are fleeting or that they don't last at the same intensity forever. And they also don't understand that emotions don't define who they are. It's not their character. So if they have a shameful emotion, let's say jealousy or shame, they may not want to own up to it. They may not even recognize it. And that might lead them to lash out at a peer or to rationalize, uh, doing something mean or posting something online. And so what we wanted, or misbehaving in class, whatever it might be. So what we want to be doing with kids is helping them identify emotions, helping them label them, reflecting what we're seeing, and then validating those emotions. And I think that's a key step that we tend to to neglect. So when we validate, it doesn't mean we agree or that we approve of how they're behaving. It means that we understand why they feel that way. So let's say a child feels that a teacher has embarrassed them in class. Maybe the teacher didn't intend to embarrass them, but the child feels embarrassed. And maybe they throw a chair or they say something inappropriate. And the administrator is then talking to them about this incident that happened. If you start right in with why it was inappropriate, you've already lost them. They're going to be defensive. But if you start with, if I felt like I had just been embarrassed in front of my peers, and remember, they care more about their peers' opinions than anyone else. They care about the adult's opinion of them as well. But dropping a notch in, their eye, in the eyes of their peers is really, really upsetting to, to a tween. So if you just validate, I might want to throw a chair too if I felt that I'd been humiliated, they're going to calm down and they're going to be able to engage in problem solving in a different way. Whereas if you shame them, they're going to get stuck. And I spoke to a principal at a school in New York, maybe about a, this happened about a year ago. He'd actually seen something I posted on social media about how instead of shaming a child or launching into criticism to simply ask them if they'd been their best self. And the reason I posted it is because I had had an experience where I realized how powerful that language was. And I didn't know this principal, but he sent me an email or a direct message on Twitter, I think a day or two later to say, I want to share a story with you. And the short story was that he was in the cafeteria and these two eighth grade girls came running up to him and they said, Mr. Adams, Mr. Adams, you have to come over here. I'll give this girl a different name. Samantha is crying. And the principal said, what happened? And what had happened is that earlier in the day, these two boys had been plotting something they were going to do. And one of them came up to her and said, this boy is going to ask you out. And even though it seemed unlikely that this particular boy was going to ask her out, she did like this boy and she was kind of excited that he might be interested in her. And later when she was in line in the cafeteria, sure enough, the boy who she had been told was going to ask her out asked her out. And because she had been primed to, to expect this, she took it at face value. But as she was walking back to her seat at the cafeteria table, she could hear the boys at the other table, including this boy, laughing really loudly, even before she got back to her seat. And she realized it had been a setup. And the intent was to humiliate her or or to have fun at her expense. And so when Mm -hmm. the principal heard this, he saw red, he was furious, and he dragged the boys to his office and started to really assail their character. You know, what kind of people are you? And he happened to glance at his screen because he was going to start taking some notes. And that's when he saw my tweet from the night before that said to try asking if they were their best self. And They had just been looking at him shocked and silent and a little defensive, but not really engaging uh, or showing any remorse. So he stopped and he said, I'm going to take a breath and I'm going to switch gears. I want to start over. Do you think you were your best self? And suddenly these boys let down their defenses and they both started to cry. And Mm. it was clear how guilty they felt. And he was able to call in their parents and have a productive conversation with them and talk to them about how they could make amends and make it right. But I think it's such a good example of how we get nowhere if we just put kids in a situation where they have to put up those defenses as opposed to, to allowing them, giving them a runway back to being a good kid and allowing them to, to admit that they failed in some way.
0: Wow, what a great story! I love that. And so, the idea of self-regulating emotions—often, what you talk about is the importance of first validating, not shaming. But in, in, even in those examples but we just gave, those that was same, that was looking for the best in someone and trying to see how you can mm-hmm. bring that out.
1: And also, you know, giving them the, that feeling language. And I've seen teachers do some really creative, uh, take some really creative measures to help kids get in touch with their feelings, and also connect their, to their feelings, to their behaviors. You know, feelings are not just something that happens to you. And you can do this in a lot of different ways. I, I love when teachers start out the day by asking kids to choose an emotion whether it's a clothesline where they can put an ID put put their name tag next to a specific emotion i had i saw one teacher who used a scale of 1 to 10 you know 10 being please check in with me i'm really in dire straits and 1 being i'm really full of joy and i always like to remind educators don't just check in with the kids who say that they are suffering, also check in with the kids who say that they're feeling joyful. You know, we really want to be encouraging kids not only to come up with coping strategies, but also to hang on to those positive emotions longer. I think we spend a lot of time worrying about stress and anxiety, and it's counterintuitive, but not all stress and anxiety is bad, and we don't want to spend all of our time focusing on the negative emotions at the expense of teaching kids to hang on to those positive ones if that makes
0: sense. Well, Phyllis, I didn't, I didn't warn you that I wanted to go this direction, but I know this is something else that you've really focused on in your work is specific ways that you can help girls, empowering girls, but also ways that you can help boys to understand how to connect. And I don't know if you want to go there deeply, but I would just love to hear some of your reflections because I know you've thought a lot about this and you've done a lot of writing and interviewing on some of the differences in ways to help boys connect and help girls to feel empowered. So could you go there for just a little bit? And Because I know you cover that in your book as well.
1: Yeah, sure. And actually, this is a story. I talk in the book about the boys group that I run and how the boys wanted to have a space where they could talk about the issues that they were grappling with. Initially, it started out, and I, and I don't share this particular story in the book, but it's one of my favorites as a school counselor, one of my greatest experiences as a school counselor. And what happened is, Initially, the boys almost wanted to have this boys group, not so much as a space to explore their own needs, but they just saw it as a matter of equity. If the girls had an empowerment group, they thought they should have a group too. And they really wanted to convince the girls that they had it as rough as the girls did, that society was as tough on them as as it was on girls. And, and they actually were right in many ways, but it was the foil to what the girls were experiencing. So I had done this activity with the boys where called the Man Box activity where they identified feelings that they felt society allowed boys or men to feel or traits that society felt were acceptable for boys and men. And I was shocked at how probably 80% of the human experience they deemed totally unacceptable as, as emotions or experiences they could could want to have. So the boys, being middle school boys, really wanted to have a meeting with the girls, with the girls group. We call it Femme here. And they wanted to convince the girls that, look, you know, this is rough for us too. And I said, you know, the girls are ahead of you. They've been doing this for 18 months. And if you think about it in, in our culture, they've probably had about have about a 20-year head start working on female empowerment and taking themselves out of the boxes that society was putting them in. And these boys were really just starting. So I said, let's get you to a place where you are really working on your needs so that when you do have a conversation with the girls, it's really constructive and productive and not a competition to see who has it worse. So we would Mm -hmm. have meetings each week. And for the first few months, every week, it seemed, the boys would say to me, what are the girls talking about? Are they, what do they think we're doing? What are they asking you about what we're covering when we have our discussions? And finally, I said, to, had to tell them, the girls aren't talking about you at all. They're not thinking about you at all. They're really working on their own stuff. And so the boys did end up shifting gears and focusing on what their needs were. And we had a lot of really Uh, deep conversations or they had deep conversations among themselves. I really view myself as more of a facilitator, only there to bring the conversation back to the center if it veers too wildly off course and to give them a little bit of structure and help them decide what it is that they wanted to talk about. But things like that you might be surprised to hear, like body image challenges or how they wanted to have really strong trusting relationships with their peers or how they felt like it wasn't okay to say they really liked school or really liked reading or that they didn't like sports. And after about 18 months, I said, you know what, if you still want to meet with the girls, I think you're ready. And this was probably six months after the book came out. Or, or before the book came out at that point, but it was not in the book. And I brought them into this meeting and I did the man box activity again, which is, you know, reading off a series of adjectives and traits and asking them whether or not it belonged in the man box or the woman, or if it belonged in the man box or not. And I also did the woman box activity, which was sort of the female equivalent. And I had the boys and girls call out at the exact same time, whatever their knee jerk reaction was. And so together, all the boys and girls would call out yes or no. So I would say, does compassion belong in the man box? And they would say, no. Does ambitious belong in the woman box? And they would say, no. And what struck me was how completely in agreement they all were. And when we were done mm-hmm. doing this activity, what they realized was that they really were fighting the same battle. And that if you could mm-hmm. open up the experience for for boys and men and allow them to feel the full spectrum of emotions and you did the same for women, you were serving everyone's needs. And it was really a beautiful moment. And instead of that antagonistic, Mm. competitive, interpersonal relationship that they had started out with, they they were really on the same page, and and there was no conflict whatsoever by the time they had that
0: meeting. What what a great story. And Phyllis, thank you for the work that you're doing with kids. I, I can't imagine the number of those boys and girls that have language now, they have vocabulary now, they have an understanding of themselves better than they had before. What a powerful model that you've been able to to work with, with boys and with girls.
1: And for, for boys who are so eager for role models, male administrators or male coaches can be really powerful advocates for allowing boys to to feel that full spectrum of emotions and to, to help them get out of the boxes that they feel constricted to.
0: Principal Matters listeners, the book is Middle School Matters, the 10 key skills kids need to thrive in middle school and beyond and how parents can help. And Phyllis, as we're wrapping up today's conversation, I just want to also encourage Principal Matters listeners to connect with you, with your content on your website and some of the things that you write uh, for national syndications. What, what are ways that Principal Matters listeners can connect with you or stay connected with your content?
1: My contact information is on my website, which is phyllisfagel.com. I also have all of my articles, for the most part, on my website. And then I tweet fairly frequently about all of these kinds of issues at
0: At Well, Phyllis, thank you so much for the value that you provide to your school. And thank you for putting together such an amazing resource. Are there any closing comments or words that you'd have for principal minors listeners as we wrap up this conversation?
1: I just want to thank you not only for inviting me today, but for having so Uh, many insights over the last few years. I want to let your readers know that I've quoted you several times in my articles, and I really appreciate how you've been a role model for your students and for your own kids in terms of modeling that a real man can show affection or in terms of advocating for uh, mental health services for kids in school. So thank you for the work that you do too.
0: Well, thank you, Phyllis. Well, Principal Matters listeners, I want you to uh, go to amazon.com, look up Middle School Matters and order this amazing resource. I I have it in my hands as I'm speaking. And not only is it just packed full of amazing resources, but it has amazing stories, just like the ones that Phyllis told as well. And just to wrap up, those 10 skills that Phyllis mentioned earlier as you summarize today's conversation, 10 things that kids can do that they need to know to thrive. One, make good friend choices. Two, negotiate conflicts. Three, manage a student-teacher mismatch. Four, create homework and organization systems. Five, consider others' perspectives. Six, self-advocate. Seven, self-regulate emotions. Eight, cultivate passions and recognize limitations. Nine, make responsible, healthy, ethical choices. And number 10, create and innovate. And we've just touched the tip of the iceberg in today's conversation with Phyllis. And so, Phyllis, thank you so much. Thank you, Principal Matters, for doing what matters. And we'll talk to you soon. If you'd like other free resources like this one, you can check out all my posts at williamdparker.com.